0: America's founders agreed that public education is essential for a democratic republic to work. Can education be quantified? How can it be measured? Can it be measured at all? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Public education is in the news like never before. Traditionally calm and relatively free of controversy, school board meetings have generated coverage on TV news because of extreme rancor, yelling, threatening by enraged parents over the very notion of public education itself. Traditionally, America has always held public education as something we all want to be excellent America's founders knew and insisted that for a democratic republic to function, citizens had to be well-educated. But what is excellence? How is it measured? Can it be measured? What do we mean by accountability? We're going to talk about that with our guest today, J.M. Beach, author of two new books, Can we measure what matters most? Why educational accountability metrics lower standard learning, student learning rather, and demoralize teachers? And the myths of measurement and meritocracy why accountability metrics in higher education are unfair and increase inequality? Josh Beets, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me, Bert. Josh Beach is the founder and director of 21st Century Literacy, a nonprofit organization focused on literacy education and teacher training. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And there's there's something called the accountability movement in the United States for schools. It began in America in the early 20th century, and it spread around the world. Now, a century later, it's about demanding excellence in public education accountability and education or is it what is it really
1: at root especially at the beginning uh in the early 20th century it was about cost effectiveness Uh, it was an economic agenda Uh, it was about efficiency Uh, and it was a part of that taylorist movement that started with businesses in the united states to try to measure every single piece and part of the mechanical process that produced uh, a good or service and that somehow the belief was that if we measured every single piece and part of the process we would have exact control over the inputs and outputs. We'd have control over the cost. We could, we could produce whatever we were producing at the lowest cost available, and then that somehow would maximize profit and maximize the success of the organization. That business model was then applied to non-businesses like schools, and later in the 20th century to healthcare and just about everything else you could imagine. But it's a flawed ideology. It, it didn't really work at the beginning. Uh, there was a lot of problems uh, when Taylor himself and many other uh, business researchers and managers tried to measure every piece of the industrialized you know, uh, worker that are producing cars or canned beans uh-huh. or whatever. Mm. Uh, even in a business setting, you, you can't measure everything. And a measurement is always a value. So once you start saying we're gonna measure this or that, You're saying that that piece of the process has value. And so people are going to treat it more importantly than other pieces or parts of the process. And you can't, I mean, it's literally impossible to measure everything. Right. So it's always selective. You're always choosing something to measure. And and that places a value on that piece or process or person in the organization. And so a lot of resources and time and attention gets placed there, but not other places. Uh And so ultimately it becomes self-defeating.
0: Interesting. And, you know, what I value in education, I value critical thinking, you know, and learning history and stuff. And a lot of people, maybe that's not as as quantifiable, whereas, you know, prepping somebody for certain business opportunities, you know, if that's what measured, uh, that's, you know, leaves out a lot of stuff that I personally think is important. But you're right. I hadn't hadn't thought about that, that, you know, by saying what's valuable... That's uh, very selective, and uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem to really uh, fit with my image of what public education is all about.
1: Right, and there's two important things that you you brought up there. So number one is intangibles, not being valued. So over the course of the 20th century, as science was developed, economists started to measure lots of things, and social scientists and physical scientists. Again, the priority was on things that could be easily seen and measured but not everything can be seen, therefore not everything can be measured, especially when you're dealing with social activities. And so there was a decided uh, kind of value decision in the early 20th century in the social sciences to just focus on things that could be seen. Anything that could not be seen was ignored and, and, and deemed you know, impossible to measure or just you know worthless. And, and one of those things was the human brain and, and human cognition. So the idea of thinking and, and critical thinking, which we, we assume, you know, it should be front and center in the educational curriculum, scientists really didn't start to study thinking and human cognition until the 60s and 70s. And it really didn't become a focus of schools until 70s and 80s. And even then, I can tell you, having worked in the system and studied it, it's still not much of a focus anywhere uh, from kindergarten through university. Uh, Even in college, even in graduate school, I'm taking an MBA course right now. I can tell you that there is almost no critical thinking in any of my courses that are required. Mm. It's just road memorization, road learning, standardized tests. And, and you can see that across the curriculum. Mm. Um, so the other thing that you, you, you bring up, which is essential to the conversation, you have your values and priorities. When you think of education, one of the things you think about critical thinking, yeah. I, I, I think that myself, not everyone thinks that though. No. There are other types of values. There are other purposes of education. So one of the core questions... Who gets to decide what's important? Whose values does, uh, decide the agenda? And we're seeing that as well with the you know culture wars and the you know debates and violence over masks and vaccines. Who gets to decide? Uh, and you know that conflict has been front and center in public schools from the very beginning of the nineteenth century. <laughs>
0: Wow, yeah, it's It's getting remarkably ugly. I, I, I'm a little bit surprised by that, but I guess that's how yeah. history works, things that you don't expect. And during this same period, you know, for the last hundred years or so, there's been a real economic transformation all across the world. Neoliberalism has, during that time, spread around the world. And of course... You and I know neoliberalism is quite distinct from traditional liberalism. What what are the central political objectives of neoliberal reformers when it comes to evaluating and shaping education?
1: Well, so liberalism was very much a political idea about trying to get more freedom to individuals. Uh, Trying to take freedom away from the monarchy, uh, the classical kind of authoritarian ruling structure that has shaped most societies for most of human history. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind liberalism is that individuals are important and everyone's a little bit different. So everyone needs some freedom to be able to live their life the way they want to. With that said, because everyone's different and doing different things, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for conflict, you know, conflicting activities, conflicting values. And so someone needs to kind of play referee to make sure that everyone's able to pursue their own good and, you know, society uh, as a whole is not um, hampered and that, you know, not very many individuals are harmed by other individuals' pursuit of their happiness. This philosophy was kind of the preserve of a very rich, elite, educated group of white men in Europe. Um, And, you know, they they developed this idea kind of tongue-in-cheek, because while they were talking about freedom, they often never meant freedom for everyone. There were always certain excluded groups, you know, and that's, you know, when you study history, one of the ironies of history, you have these... These wonderful ideals, but they're often selectively applied, imperfectly applied. And so liberalism was flawed in that you know it was it tended to be very selective, and it assumed that rich, powerful white men were going to kind of control the contours of who gets to do what and how that was going to work and who gets to write the laws, you know the rule book. Progressive liberalism kind of developed as a response to communism and the radical leftward revolutionary movements of the late 19th and early 20th century, the French Revolution, and then you had the Communist Revolution um, in Germany, an uprising, and then in in Russia. And so there were these very radical ideas that we should just overturn all rules and execute all of the aristocrats and leaders and Mm -hmm. and just have a free-for-all. Everyone gets to do whatever they want. Um, And so you had a lot of radical ideas, and and there's just... You know, so many different variations, and so progressivism that developed late 19th, early 20th century. It was trying to more broadly apply yeah. classical liberalism's idea of freedom for everyone, especially workers, uh, because you had these giant corporations beginning to form, and people became aware that you know not only can you be as enslaved. But by the color of your skin, but you can be enslaved by economic necessity, you know, that you have to work and powerful people can, you know, uh, say you take this job for very little pay or or nothing. Uh, And so you have to take the job for very little pay. And, you know, people were working seven seven days a week for 12 to 14, 16 hours a day their whole life and dying at, you know, 30 or 40 years old. Uh, So progressives were trying to find a middle path. You know, they they definitely saw the excesses of industrial capitalism. Uh, They saw the limitations of classical liberalism. They were also very scared about yes. ra- the radical left revolutionaries and, and the violence, you know, and the war that that precipitated. Um, and so they're trying to find a middle path and, and progressive very much, they, they were a believer in science. They thought that science could solve our problems. They thought that too much of human history, too many activities were being based on myth um, and common sense yeah. and tradition. And so they wanted scientists to kind of, let's turn to scientists, they can measure things, they can evaluate things. And based on evidence and critical thinking, They're going to find the right path for business, for schools, for government. They're going to fix everything. Well, neoliberalism kind of carried that tradition on, that faith in scientists and managers, and they began to take it a little bit too far in a certain sense that they wanted to measure everything. And they wanted, you know, uh, scientists and, and managers and mathematicians to be in charge of everything. And so the number crunchers basically became the de facto rulers. And again, if you couldn't measure it, well, it wasn't important. You know, if you, if you valued something that we can't measure like critical thinking or democracy, we can't really talk about that and it's not really all that important. We're gonna mm. focus on economic issues because we can measure those and we can we can look at those concretely. Um, and so neoliberalism was kind of a, a really orthodox turn to economists and economists became the de facto rulers of modern society. And it was also, in a certain sense, a return to the classical liberalism selective idea of justice and freedom in that neoliberals kind of saw the progress that progressives had made especially in america and western europe and they were kind of feeling very confident hey we solved a lot of the problems our societies are freer than they ever were before women can vote now and gradually non-white people were able to vote and immigrants had more of a a place in, in in society and so they were feeling like hey you know we solved a lot of the older injustices we now live in an equal playing field where everyone can achieve based on their own merit. Mm. And so there's this, there's this political uh, underpinning of neoliberalism that everything is fair and that now people can just work hard and achieve based on their you know, own personal individual efforts. And we don't need governments anymore. We don't need people and rules um, that, that everyone can just do whatever they want to because we've achieved that you know, perfect equal society. Which we haven't, <laughs> uh, and so neoliberals kind of combine this faith in numbers with this naive faith that we don't have any discrimination anymore. We don't have any conflict over political values or uh, social, you know, values mm. or, or characteristics.
0: So everything can be measured by its economic uh, efficiency. Of course, yeah. Right. Well, as as. Rocky said to Bullwinkle so long ago that trick never works.
2: Uh, if, if you just tuned Good in, well,
0: of course, I, I know some great philosophers like Rocky. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about. Education and Effectiveness, Can We Measure What Matters Most? Our guest today is the author of a book of that title and another one uh, also about uh, educational accountability. Is J.M. Uh, Beach, Josh Beach. And it, 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 in being aware of, of education, in recent decades, uh, teachers are not happy with measurement standards. Measurement, uh, to measure their effectiveness and theoretically to improve schools and classrooms but they've really tied the hands of teachers And instead, they're teaching for tests, you know, because they're easy to measure. In what ways have these accountability reforms led to actually ineffective managerialism and delegitimizing the professional judgment and skilled practices of teachers? Some have argued that these measures were more suited to propaganda than research and reform. Talk about that, if you would, please. How so?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, at, at the root of that question again is is standards. Who gets to set the standard? For what purpose? What value? What objective? And so, the standards that schools have, for the most part, they're being set by politicians. They're being set by uh, social scientists and economists. They're being set by administrators and principals and superintendents. They're not being set by teachers. They're not being set by the one group of people who are at the front line, the closest to the students being served, who see the individual needs of each student, who have to bring you know the, the curriculum to each student in an individualized package and kind of oversee how the student learns or doesn't learn, uh, reacts to that, um, that, that curriculum. In any endeavor, if, let's you know talk about healthcare. Think about for a minute, if we designed our hospital so that politicians and the CEO of a hospital, they were the one that decided all the procedures that doctors had to follow in the operating room and you know when they were meeting with their patients and that these politicians and these administrators were going to be evaluating doctors by criteria that the politicians and administrators set and they didn't really want to listen to what the doctors had to say they didn't really care about any professional expertise that a doctor might have it's the leaders that knew everything and we're going to judge you by our standards and you know it doesn't matter that I've never been in an operating room and I have no idea what you actually do in that room and what your tools are and you you know i i'm the leader i'm the manager i know that it's just ridiculous it sounds i mean it, it's to, when you think about that example it sounds ridiculous yes but that's exactly what has always gone on in schools that teachers are somehow these you know these peons that you know have no professional identity or training. They don't know what they're doing. They're just people in a classroom and they can be easily, you know, controlled by their betters, the managers and the politicians and told exactly what to do. And then these teachers are just going to go and do it. And then supposedly whatever the teacher says and does in the classroom, the students are supposed to go and do, you know, this this command and control model, this top down bureaucratic model. It doesn't work. It's never worked. It doesn't work in business. It doesn't work in schools. And yet that's the way things are structured. And again, when you create a standard, a measurement, and say, okay, this is the rubric we're going to use, well, that's what's important. So I want to keep my job. If I want to get a raise, if I want to pass this class as a student, I'm going to do exactly what the teacher said to do. And as a teacher, I'm going to do exactly what my superintendent said to do. Hmm. And so you begin to do only that thing that gets measured. And anything that isn't that, you ignore because that doesn't help me. That doesn't help me pass this class. And I can tell you from my own experience, you know, when I do learning that I'm motivated to do that I think is really important and it's connected to what I'm learning in a college class or, uh, you know, when I was a high school student, you know, I get punished for that because that's not on the test. That's not part of the assignment. You you didn't follow the directions. Uh, When a teacher does something outside of the prescribed curriculum or what's going to be, you know, on the test the super, what are you doing? The principal says, why are you doing That's not important. We want that test score to go up. That doesn't help the test score go up. Therefore that's wasted energy and, and, and time. And so people get trained to just focus on the one thing that's being measured, the one thing that's supposedly important or the group of things. Mm. And at the same time, again, if my job's on the line and my family is on the line and I know that that metric is the one and only thing that people care about. No one's looking. Why don't I just write it in? You know, why don't I? and that we see that all over the country, fraud, that uh, students are cheating, obviously. They've always ch- cheated on, on tests, and they continue to cheat on, cheat on tests, especially in higher education. But teachers also cheat. You know, they, they have a subtle form of cheating, which is the teach, to the test where they're only focusing on these little gimmicks that help people take standardized tests, mm. doesn't really mm. promote learning. And in some cases, teachers literally are changing test score answers or principals are doing that uh, or they're lying about, they're just giving, you know, A's and B's in the class, regardless of, if the students learn anything, mm. um, you, you know, it, it's just a, a corrupting system uh, that, you know, no one is really accountable to the one group of people we should all be accountable to, and that's the students. You know, these individuals, especially the younger, you know, children, they are developing young people that need direction, they need guidance, they need knowledge, they need skills. We need to be helping them to be successful, you know, young adults, and so they can lead successful lives. We need to be giving them the knowledge and skills they need. And we're not doing that. We're failing them because we're just focused on this numbers game. Um, and I don't know if you ever saw the HBO show Chernobyl uh, or know anything about the Soviet Union, but we've seen this before. The, so that's exactly what the Soviet Union tried to do when they manage their economy, uh, run by bureaucrats focused on, you know, certain numbers. And everyone was, de- you know, delivering the numbers. And we're seeing this in China as well, to a certain extent, although we can't always have access to the actual numbers over there. But... Uh, The numbers are getting delivered, but does that actually reflect the real state of what's going on in the economy, in society, in the Soviet Union, in China? The answer is no. And we saw in the Soviet Union that that society just crumbled. You know, it, it, it just literally crumbled from within because no one was actually doing the important work that needed to be done to make individual lives work and have value and for people to survive and thrive as human beings. And we're in danger here in America of the same thing happening.
0: Boy, and I can think of so many examples over the past 50 years or so of top-down decisions being made on You know, cost-benefit analysis, and I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, in the late 1960s, American car manufacturers, the decisions were top-down. And you know what? They made lousy cars. They made lousy cars, and people stopped buying them. And the idea of listening to people on the ground, people who are actually making the cars and buying the cars, uh, you know,
1: they... That's a perfect example. They didn't do that. And, and the one company, you know, a group of companies that were. And, and this is this is a great irony. I'm, I, I'm glad you brought up this example. So, you know, it was during that time, but then in the 70s and 80s, Japan. Yeah, you know the country's attention turned to Japan because they were doing things differently. They had a focus on culture, frontline workers listening to their workers, listening. every worker's input was important, and also listening to customers and trying to give customers exactly oh, what they wanted. Goodness. You know who gave the Japanese? I mean, partly this is a revision of an ancient, you know, Japanese way of, of craftsmanship uh, called Kaizen but there was also a key uh, component of the Japanese success and it was an American, an American economist, an American uh, management professor, uh, W. Edwards Deming. Uh, His ideas were rejected here in America. He went to Japan and they ate him up and they listened very closely to what he had to say. And He helped these Japanese countries develop or these Japanese companies develop their manufacturing capabilities. And they put his ideas into practice and then they reap the benefits. Whereas the American companies who ignored Deming and what he had to say. And he was very, I mean, I owe so much of my research and what I say in my books to the research of Deming. Um, that he was very clear and he was writing about this, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, the, that the way that American companies were using top-down measurements that reflected management priority, ignoring frontline workers, it does not work. It does not produce quality. It does not produce long-term profits. It does not work. And it's not working in schools either.
0: Yeah, so it seems. I mean, it seems like some of the most obvious lessons are ones we just refuse to learn. You know, it's right there. Right. And another thing I, I say probably too often is one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history we just don't right. <laughs> and we've seen these and I think it's ramping up now uh, the enraged parents and school board meetings it's, it's, it's a front line of the culture wars that are happening now and some of these people there they, they insist on a return to what I think used to be that in, before the 20th century, I guess I'm not sure you would know schools as institutions of morality and enlightenment that's what it was, I, 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 there was I'll never forget I, I, I saw some uh, parents saying I don't want my kid to learn history because that gets in the way of the beliefs I'm trying to <laughs> force on them I'm serious uh, what, 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 and what, they, they insist I I think I think a lot of them I don't really understand. I mean, it's like I don't understand the resistance to the vaccine for that matter. But they insist on a return to making the only purpose of schools to become institutions of morality as they define it. What do you hear from educators about this?
1: Debates, this conflict, I mean, it's as old as, as public schooling here in the United States. That schooling and, and education, it, it, it's very much a product of its local society. So the, the very purpose, why, why do we have a school?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're trying to train our young people to be just like us. And so schooling and, and education has always been a process of molding young people. And never, never really until the 20th century did the student's opinion matter hmm. because children do what they, they're told to do. And you can still see this very much in Asia, which is a very community-oriented culture. You have, or they have very community-oriented cultures where it's the family unit that's important, not the individual. And kids know they're going to do whatever their parents want them to do. Hmm. The expectation is you do what's good for the family. And so there's a long tradition where where kids were just brought up to do usually what their parents did, what their father did, uh, and and girls did whatever their mother did. Um, So the idea that schools are a place where we go to learn or we go to be enlightened, or gain critical thinking or even job skills. Now, traditionally, a school is a place where you're created, you're stamped, you're molded to be one of us, part of our community. You're one of the good people. If you aren't molded like we are, you're a stranger. You're an outsider. Mm. You're one of the bad people we are scared of you. Uh, and you still see this, you know, with the wow. whole immigration. So schools have always had that focus. And in the early 20th century, when large amounts of immigrants were coming into the United States, there was a huge debate. And you're thinking you're seeing violence now and conflict. In the early 20th century, it was raging the fires even, even, even more extreme wow. because you had these different groups of communities, you know, many of which did not really speak English at all. And, and those people, those adults and children, needed to be educated and schooled so that they could become American citizens. Um, and so there was a debate about, you know, whose values, whose language, whose beliefs. Uh, and so the idea that schools should hold students with certain values and beliefs That's always been the case. But when you have a multicultural democracy, especially Mm -hmm. when you have groups of people with different values and beliefs, well, whose values and beliefs take precedence in the 19th century? You know, pretty much everyone that went to school was a Christian, but they weren't all the same type of Christian. Uh, And so different Protestant sects and Protestants and Catholics, they all saw each other as outsiders and enemies. Hmm. They didn't like each other. And it took a very long time in this country for schools to develop the right kind of Christianity to teach, which was ultimately this kind of uh, non-denominational, bland Christianity that Massachusetts and you know, the schools in the Northeast first developed. No one really liked it because it wasn't really anyone's version of Christianity, uh, but it was it was the safe route to kind of make it more acceptable to all the versions of of Christianity. Uh, and then you know, with the culture wars that began late nineteenth, early twentieth century, you had all these different cultures. You had Germans, and you had Scandinavians, and you had Italians, and you had the Irish, and you had African Americans who were formerly slaves, and you had African Americans coming from Africa. Uh, you, you I mean, you had a you had Japanese and Chinese. You had all these different groups with different cultural practices and language all coming into the same schools and so there was huge debates over what language what values you know what what is acceptable and not acceptable whose food whose dress and we're still seeing that yes. same debate with a different set of triggers uh, today in the, in the 21st century education is always a negotiation you know that teachers and students have to negotiate in the classroom, you know, what are we gonna do uh, that a teacher can never make? And I don't know if you're a parent or not, but parents know very well that you can't just tell your five-year-old or your 17-year-old what to do. They have a say in the process. And sometimes they do what you want them to do after prolonged negotiation. And often they do not. It's the same in the classroom. And so when you're dealing with students, there needs to be give and take. There needs to be that relationship form of trust. When you have these culture wars and all these other external issues taking precedence, what gets ignored is the people in the classroom and their needs because they're having to deal with the political battles outside of the school and everything gets translated into whatever that you know particular political battle happens to be. And they're not allowed to just be a student and a teacher in a classroom talking about a curriculum and trying to figure out what's the best way to get this learner to learn so that they can be the best person they can be and go on to future, future success. It, All of that gets subsumed in this raging fire of animosity and conflict and choosing sides and you must be this or you must be that. And it just it, it makes it impossible to teach.
0: Yeah, it really does. I'll tell you, I'm I'm glad uh, my I've had a few surgeries, and I'm glad the professionals were professional and not just uh, local people who said, "Not nah, do it this way, do it that way." But that you're right. Know, this culture war, it's it's really extreme, and the students are at effect. They they don't you know they're just sort of we want to continue to have us have you be the good people, not the others. And there's a lot of fear involved, and no one should underestimate right. fear. Whereas measure, measurable things, that's not so scary. You can understand that kind of, uh, in a way, you know, that it's quantifiable. Ah, you know, the schools did well. They performed well. Uh, We had this uh, whole uh, uh, no kid, no child left behind thing, which was, um, I think, uh, a lot of standardized stuff that, that probably came from the top down. And these standardized tests, you know, in modern Western culture... Uh, as quality is not measurable and abilities you know to th- critically think are not measurable you know obviously what you're writing about is is that the belief that everything must be quantifiable but many enthusiastic Good students don't do well on standardized tests. Uh, I, I, I've honestly hated them for a long time. Although I, I love me education, too, too. IQ scores, SATs, grades, degrees, credentials are all measures that have been used to rank and segregate students. They, they're all terribly flawed. Why do we continue to use them? Is it just because they're easier? And and from what what is it? Why do we continue to depend on them?
1: Yeah. Well, one is just, by human nature, we are creatures of tradition. We do what has been done. What was done last week, what was done last year, what we just continue to do. that. The easiest thing is to keep the status quo. Uh, And we don't often think about what we're doing or why we're doing it. You know, it just becomes ingrained as a habit. And so, you know, too many educators, teachers, students, we've all been schooled. And so we have this expectation of what school is and what we should do in schools, and it's very hard to break out of that. Yes. Although some people try, and so part of it is just blind inertia. And and part of what I'm trying to do in these books is to get people to open their eyes and see. Look, this is this is where it came from. This this is what it's doing. We can do things differently. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that. It's, it's going to happen, but it could happen. You know, if enough people opened their eyes and decided, hey, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to try to do something new. And, and there are many people across this country, across this world, that are doing new things, uh, new exciting things, some of which work, some of which don't. But again, an issue is, you know, we should be measuring. I'm a big proponent of social scientists. I think that science is important, that measurements are important, that data should drive decisions and not tradition, not blind obedience uh, to authority, not common sense, um, that we need to have data. And that numbers are an important part of the good decision-making process. But qualitative data, understanding what's going on in the human's brain. What are you feeling? Uh, What are you thinking? What are your opinions? What are your goals and motivations? That is important data. It's messy data, but it's also data, and it needs to play a role as well. So when it comes to making education work and assessing our students, I'm for assessments, and I'm for, to a certain extent, standardized tests. But they need to be derived and created by educators for educational purposes, and it would be best, again, if teachers were in the driver's seat. I'm in my classroom. I need to decide what is the best assessment method for these students for my purposes, knowing what I know of their skills and abilities and motivations. I need to be able to design a test that's going to achieve our objectives here. And then at the same time, I know it's not perfect. I know the test is flawed. And I know my students are, you know, they're they're not all going to get it the first time. And so there needs to be this give and take process, you know, and for example, the idea of of asking students about their learning, you know, students are not very reliable, about their own learning. Uh, they, they don't fully understand when they are or are not learning, and they really don't understand mm. when a teacher is effective or not. Uh, most students, you know, kind of confuse a good actor for a good teacher. Mm. But at the same time, teachers should be talking to their students and asking students for their opinions and their emotions to, to kind of get a pulse of where students are at. And even though it might be very flawed data, right. it still can be useful, right? So... I mean, we could be designing accountability metrics and measurements and standards locally for each school, for each classroom, and a teacher could be using this data every day, every week, you know, every year, thinking about, okay, what worked, what didn't work, and always, every activity, some kids are not going to get it. It's always going to fail, and what worked today with these kids is not going to work tomorrow for those same kids. Um, it, nothing is perfect in, in any educational setting. So to kind of have you know knowledgeable, dedicated professionals who are kind of creating their own standards and their own metrics and they're collecting and analyzing this data, and certainly that's a big job, so they need some help, and so that's the role for administrators, to help teachers not to judge them, not to, you know, hire and fire them. That's not the best role for administrators. It's to help teachers do their jobs. And so administrators could be there helping teachers collect data and analyze data, and they could be helping teachers more effectively reach their students and have conversations with parents and other, you know, community organizations. Um, So it's when we have these, you know, SATs and ACTs, these are designed by companies, companies that care about profits in the bottom line. They're not designed for students. Why do we use these tests? Well, we use these tests because we have this, this, this notion that we have to rank students and only the very best students get to go to the very best schools. That's the sole purpose of the ACT and the SAT. It's not an educational purpose. It does not help students learn. Learning is not the point of of that kind of test. So why are we doing it? Again, well, because a lot of people like to rank students. And that's a very, you know, longstanding tradition in Western societies, ranking people and giving everyone a little badge. You're good. You're bad. Mm. You're mediocre. Uh, You know, we have, have all these different gradations of names that we assign people. And sometimes they're quite ugly. You know, when we have racialized badges, you're not a human. You're a human. You know, you're not a human. So we get to do these horrible things to you. You're a human. You get to be part of the good club and you know, actually live a decent life maybe. So when we rank and assign people, these badges, again, it's not for human development, purpose, learning, purpose, educational purpose. There are other social, political, economic reasons. We do those things. Maybe they're important sometimes, but sometimes it's just about power. It's just about authority and Maybe we need to rethink those assumptions.
0: Power and authority. And a lot of, uh, it, I think there's a lot of confusion. I have to, you know, uh, assume innocence uh, before <laughs> judging that a lot of the parents who are enraged, they, they're concerned about power and authority. And they want it themselves, but uh, that may, may not be the, the best way to do things. There, there is confusion about it. There, there's concern. Uh, maybe they share the concern that it's being done top down. I, I, I don't really know. But we're talking about measuring education. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Josh Beach. He's got a couple of new books out. One, Can We Measure What Matters Most? Why Educational Accountability uh, Metrics Lower Student Learning and Demoralize Teachers. And the other book is The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy. Why Accountability Metrics in Higher Education Are Unfair and Increase inequality. Well, let me ask about that. Why are accountability metrics in higher education unfair? And how do they, in higher education we're talking about, and increase inequality?
1: Well, in higher education, uh, the main type of accountability metric that was developed, so for most of its history, colleges and universities, you know, the classroom was run by the professor. And, and in Europe, you know, the professor was kind of their own, you know, semi-autonomous economic agent. They found their own students, students paid the professor directly, wow. and then the professor just kind of gave a cut to the school. And even in America, you know, in many uh, colleges, that's the way it works still. And it wasn't until the late 19th and. Uh, early twentieth century, when universities started to formalize as a as a separate institution, kind of modeled on you know institutions in the business world, then we had this kind of top down administrative bureaucratic. You know, each department has a head. You know, we have VPs and deans, and we have college presidents. Uh, and so professors started to lose their control over the classroom. Mm. But for mm. most of the 20th century, it was just assumed Some professors are smart people, they have you know, degrees, they know what they're doing, we're just gonna leave them to, to do what they need to do. And so no one really bothered to think about, well, what is the professor doing in the classroom? (laughs) Are students actually learning something? Is that actually working, you know? Um, So in the early 20th century, some professors started to think about some researchers, you know, how do we start to measure this? How do we start to see what's going on in classrooms and evaluate, is it working? Uh, And the the method that uh, researchers developed because it was a method that was being used all across uh, modern society was the survey uh, in mm-hmm. college and universities we're dealing with young adults, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the idea was we can ask adults, you know, about what their service experience was like, you know, a business could or a government could, and then based upon that information, that data, then we can make modifications. It's working or not working. Okay, and then we can do this. So the idea was that surveys are an instrument that collected objective information, and that objective information could then be used by smart policymakers to make better informed decisions. And that later in the 20th century, with the development of statistics, statisticians began to uh, statistically analyze survey data and to try to see, you know, how, how reliable it, it, it may be or not be. So in higher education, they're developed this survey. We're going to survey the students and ask them, how, how, how was your educational experience? And so there's a set of questions that students get asked at the end of every course where they're essentially rating their teacher, rating the curriculum, you know, asking uh, questions about, you know, was the um, a professor in their office during office hours? Did they create a challenging curriculum? Did they respond to student needs or email and whatnot? Now, largely this was informal. So, you know, this data was collected, but it wasn't really used for anything other than, you know, giving feedback to the professor and they could choose to use it or not. But over the course of the 20th century, as more and more students went into higher education, we had this massification of higher education, especially once we had the Civil Rights Movement and all of these excluded minorities were getting into higher education for the first time and women were getting into higher education in larger amounts and, and yes. the poor and lower class were getting into higher education, GI Bill. And so by the 60s and 70s, you had an explosion of college students. And so then mm-hmm. there became this pertinent question and and you also had, you had culture wars, you had Ronald Reagan in California, yes. who, who was you know concerned about these leftist professors and he actually took funding away. Uh, from public universities, you know, starting in the late 60s and 70s in California. And that trend, you know, continues to this day. Um, So you had politicians that were concerned about what was going on in higher education, began to kind of control funding or make it conditional or take it away. And then you had economic crises, stagflation of the 70s. And a lot of public money was disappearing. Mm. And so colleges and universities had to make do with less money, and they had to raise tuition. You know, for most of the 20th century, college was free to most students because very few students went and it was considered kind of this you know public good Uh and so you had all these students you had you know declining uh uh, funding and so there was this idea we we need to be more frugal about our resources we need to know what works or doesn't work accountability measurements so now we're going to use these student evaluation surveys to evaluate whether or not professors are doing their job as teachers in the classroom. And that's going to help us determine who gets hired and fired. And especially we're going to use these with community colleges because those people have less job security and they were more controlled traditionally by the administration. And so it was easier to hire and fire those, those faculty. And so by the eighties and nineties into the early 21st century, these student evaluation surveys have become more and more important. The problem is that they don't work, they're very subjective, sure. we're getting the emotions and opinions of students and they don't fully understand what's going on in the classroom. And sometimes students are just making stuff up, you know, they're, they're being mean because they didn't like it to a teacher mm-hmm. and so they're, you know, mm-hmm. some students will give zeros on every question, you know, just because they don't like that or they don't care, right? And there's been a fascinating series of experiments called the Fox effect uh, studies where uh, researchers are trying to understand our college students, including graduate students and professionals, can they actually judge a quality teacher? Do they know what quality teaching actually is? And so these experiments, and they've been done with undergraduates, graduate students, uh, with working professionals who have graduate degrees, a paid actor is in front of a group of students pretending to teach, you know, saying things and, and acting like a teacher. And they're using a script, which is nonsense. So what they're saying is that it doesn't make sense. It, it's not real. It, it's false information. And so the study is, do the students know, number one, that it's an actor and not a teacher? And do they know that the information that they're getting is garbage? And the data is is crystal clear. Most students have no idea they're getting false information and they think it's one of the best teachers they've ever had. They they give really high marks to this actor because the actor is acting like a teacher. Mm. And so we know from research that students, they have this expectation of what a teacher is supposed to sound like and do and look like. And so that's what they reward someone who plays the part well people who don't look like that or sound like that, um, who, who look different from me and you know, the people that I like, I'm going to give them lower ratings regardless of their actual, you know, uh, teaching abilities. And, and there have been studies that show that the teachers, professors who actually do the best job of teaching students and then giving them learning over the long term, not just in this course, but over future courses, they get the lowest student evaluation survey marks the worst teachers that inflate their grades and make the class very easy for students they get the highest student evaluation marks so the worst teachers mm. are getting the most praise and they're getting you know the, the most bonuses and rewards and you know uh, keeping their jobs whereas the best teachers they often get criticized for teaching <laughs> Because it's it's, it's it's too difficult. You know, it challenges the students. The students don't like to be challenged. It, it sometimes is a negative experience to learn. Learning hurts, you know. Learning can be very difficult. And, and learning yes, involves yes. failure. You know, that we we never get it right the first couple or, you know, 100 times. And that learning is, is about learning from failure and doing better the next time and working again and again. And that takes a lot of work and effort and concentration. And a lot of students, they don't like that. They don't and like so that. They, and-
0: yeah, I was just going to say that we we have this celebrity culture, you know, the easy stuff, uh-huh. you know, uh, right. uh, the orange one who played president, uh, you know, it was about ratings, it was about ratings, and that's right, exactly, you know, and and as you say, playing school and being an actor. That's what seems to uh, work, but you're right. You know, it's not supposed to be easy. That's not really the way to to actually learn. And I wonder. You know, your book is titled uh, "Can We Measure What Matters Most?" Can can we evaluate teachers? How can we do it? Are there tools? which work with the popularity thing. doesn't work. The the uh, standardized test thing don't work. The uh, no child left behind grading the schools doesn't work. What, what can we do? I mean, we, if we want good education, can we? Right. Do and, and again, uh,
1: yeah, it's, and it's not about having no standards and no metrics, no accountability, but about effective metrics, valid metrics. Uh, and, and the question is, and it's a, this is kind of a deceptive question, uh, play on words. So essentially when people want to ask that question and answer it, they have this idea that there's one answer and that's what needs to go. Uh, there is no one answer. There's no one measurement that's going to work there. There's no one tool that's never worked and it, it's never going to work it's for business, for schools, hospitals, for anything.
0: No, uh, One so size about, doesn't fit all. Sorry.
1: Right. It never has, right. uh, you know, um, And so when we think about, you know, how do we help teachers do better in the classroom, helping students learn, helping students develop emotionally, academically, socially? I mean, there are so many things that teachers need to be doing to help students on so many different levels. We need to give teachers more oversight and control, and we need to have them at minimum participating in the evaluation process in deciding what gets measured and how it gets measured they need to have feedback in that process ideally they would be in control of that process that teachers would be taught how to be researchers and to collect their own data there's a whole line of social scientific research called action research and it's predicated on the idea that researchers need to be a participant with the people that they're researching to help them and that their research should do something good for the people Uh, and that researchers shouldn't just be these external smart people that come in and out of a room and then, you know, tell people what to do. No, to use your tools like a mechanic, go into a situation, talk with the person. These are the things that need to be fixed. Let's fix them together. Let me show you how to use these tools that we can go in and do it together. And so teachers need to be in control of that evaluation process to think about, okay, you know, I have these students, they see their parents outside enraged over masks and vaccines and who's president or not president we need to talk about that because if the students are focused on what their parents are doing and that national conversation, all that anger and animosity, they're not going to be learning in the classroom. And so teachers in that classroom need to say, Hey, we need to do some learning about, you know, social and political responsibility and and how people with different views still need to be able to talk with one another, live with one another, share a community together. That's an important lesson that needs to be learned in that classroom on that day. And teachers need that flexibility. And then that can be related. Okay, we're learning about math. Well, you know, let's, let's talk about math and let's talk about, you know, history and how math could be used to measure what or did or did not happen, you know, in terms of an election and votes were counted, you know. Let's talk about the votes and how they're counted. Who counts them? You know, what were the measurements? You know, what were the counts? You know, who liked those measurements or who didn't? Connect that to the lesson. You know? And and so you're addressing a social issue, you're addressing a political issue, you're trying to calm the emotional, you know, concerns and needs of those students and connected that to your objectives as a teacher. I need to teach some math today, or I need to teach some English or some social studies. And then you connect that lesson. And then you think about, okay, this this happened today. You know, what what well what, what didn't go well, you know, um, you know, looking at the behavior of students, looking at some of the work that they did in terms of maybe a writing assignment or class discussion and, and how they were talking and how motivated and engaged they were uh, looking at, you know, a little math quiz that you might get given at the end of the day, uh, maybe asking a colleague, hey, can you come back tomorrow? I want to do, I want to try something and, and, and to see, you know, I did this today. Is it going to work tomorrow? Can, mm-hmm. can you observe and watch the, the kids as they do this and, and give me your opinion about what you're saying and collect that data and then make another decision, right? That's what we need to be doing in the classroom. Teachers are craftsmen and, and professionals. They need to be, you know, taking out their tools and, and helping their students in whatever way they can each and every day and just collecting as much data to make better decisions um, and, and to drive that process.
0: Wow. Yeah. You, you probably wouldn't be the uh, enraged parents' uh, favorite person who, who go into the school. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a tad risky for you. I mean, quite physically, actually. Um, and uh, to me, you know, a couple of things. I like democracy. I really do like democracy. And I think the more democracy, the better. You know, if people can participate in the autocracy, the top-down answers, some people are pushing for that. It's a heck of a lot easier than democracy. It takes real participation in that. And you, you say you're doubtful that true educational reform can happen in the U.S. But that said, you also suggest we should act as if it could what changes do you believe are vital for real educational good reform to be a possibility? And are we starting to recognize that, you know, education is a serious vital part of, of national security? A few questions in there.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I'm, I'm a big believer of democracy myself. You know, I, I, I like that quote, which I'm going to misphrase, but you know, democracy is the worst system, but it's better than anything else. Yes. Um, but we've found, you know, what's interesting for me as a researcher, especially researchers focused on, on, on thinking and decision-making data um, that researchers have found over the last two decades that, you know, crowds think better than individuals. Individuals are flawed. We all have bias. We all make you know, bad decisions. We have emotions that affect our decision. But when you get a large group of people, smart, trained people and they all make the same decision together. And then you evaluate, you know, what are the majority thinking and and how are they thinking, what the conclusions are, you make a better decision. And businesses are beginning to use this process of groups of people, uh, thinking rather than individuals. And so when you think about democracy, what makes democracy better than everything else? Mm -hmm. Giving individuals all the freedom to make decisions and seeing what the majority think and, and how they arrive at their conclusion and, and what happens, what's the result. And it, it, the, the evidence is crystal clear, and social scientists, uh, a political scientists have been studying this for over half a century. Democracies work better on every measurement of human happiness. That there's no question, hands down, when you give people freedom. they're doing or CEOs of companies, bad things happen. So we need to have a system where the citizens have basic levels of reading, writing, thinking, On everyone else, and we depend on businesses with good products, yes. you know, with good resources, and good government, and good schools. We need all these institutions and organizations working well. And so, going from that premise backwards to schools, what should we be doing in schools? to ensure that that larger society is working how it should be that we have the citizens that can be democratic citizens we have the consumers that can be good knowledgeable consumers we have the you know the workers that can be productive workers yes. and productive managers and then we think about schools what should we be doing in the classroom well again we know educational researchers for decades, we know about what works in the classroom and what doesn't work in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're t- especially at the best schools in this country which are working quite well. They happen to be the richest, widest neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, but we have some wonderful schools with incredibly talented teachers that are doing exactly what research says they should be doing because they have all the resources they need to do their job well. And they have a community that supports them fully to do that job. We can, How do we, we can do that and, and extend it to everyone? You know? And that becomes the central question. It's not that we don't know what to do. We do. Is that we're we're selectively applying and and that everyone doesn't have access and that you know certain groups of people you know want to control the whole process for their own ends Rather than allowing each community to kind of run things as 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 they see fit to meet their local needs,
0: democracy in education—what a concept! We've been talking with author J. M. Beach. <laughs> Can we? Me- he's got two books. Can we measure what matters most? Why educational accountability metrics lower student learning and demoralize teachers? And. The Myths of Measurement and Meritocracy, Why Accountability Metrics in Higher Education Are Unfair and Increase Inequality. Josh Beach, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. We had a lot of work to do.
1: Thank you so much, Bert.
3: Teachers should make a billion dollars and get more vacation time. Spend their days wrangling all our crazy kids. When they go out, they should get free bottomless wine. Teachers should make a billion dollars. And when it's time for arts and crafts, they should get swarmed by paparazzi who demand selfies and autographs. Teachers shouldn't have to pay their taxes They should get cheered around the clock At the bank, they should throw money at them And at Chipotle, they should always get free guac Teachers should make a billion dollars Teachers should make a billion dollars Twice a week.
0: If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.